Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lee Dugatkin. He's Professor of Biology and Distinguished Arts and Sciences Scholar in the Department of Biology at the University of Louisville. He is a behavioral ecologist and historian of science, and his main area of research interest is in the evolution of social behavior. And today we're going to focus on his recent book, Power in the Wild, the Subtle and Not-So-Subtle Ways Animals Strive for Control Over Other. So, Dr. Dugatkin, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So, uh, tell us first, what is dominance from the perspective of evolutionary biology? Well, when we talk about dominance, we typically talk about um, hierarchies. And so um, we, we have dominance hierarchies in which um, usually the way they're defined is that um, they indicate uh, access of some sort to resources and preferential access as a function of where you are in the hierarchy. Usually the hierarchy is maintained by um, aggressive interactions. And so when you have um, a particular type of hierarchy called a linear hierarchy, you basically have a situation where the top ranked individual um, will defeat the second ranked individual when they interact. The second ranked individual will defeat the third, who will defeat the fourth, all the way down to the individual who is on the bottom of the hierarchy. And, and, and that these interactions, these aggressive interactions are basically what set the stage for who gets preferential access to, to resources. And, and for me, it's that preferential access to resources the, and, and the ability to control um, what others do and how they can get to resources compared to how you can get to them. That, that's really at the heart of what I mean when I talk about power. Mm -hmm. So, but what is power really about? I mean, of course, I would imagine that across different animal species, it would be about slightly different things. But what are animal? What do animals want to get control over exactly? Sure. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, basically, what they want are uh, is control over resources that get translated into increased numbers of offspring. So that that's a very that's an answer at a very sort of large scale. Um, at a more day-to-day -day basis, then basically what animals are trying to do is either get preferential access to mates or preferential access to areas that will attract mates or um, resources like food that allow them to basically get hold of a good area, get access to members of the opposite sex, mate and have as many offspring as possible. Mm -hmm. And is power something that animals usually uh, are able to get by themselves or do they have to form coalitions and then are, is there, for example, a relationship between cooperation and dominance? Sure, there's absolutely a relationship um, between cooperation and, and dominance. So um, 
whether or not you need coalitions in order to um, obtain power depends uh, on the particular animals that you're looking at. In some cases, um, animals don't need uh, the help of others to to get to hold on to or obtain power. In other cases, and, and these are very interesting, but on uh, in general they're relatively rare. You do get um, complex coalitions being formed by individuals. Um, you often will get these coalitions between individuals who are so top-ranked individuals tend. Um, not to need coalitions as much as individuals who are lower in the power structure. And so you will um, sometimes see coalitions formed by um, middle-ranking individuals, and the coalitions are essentially there to um, act in unison against higher-ranked individuals so that you can together uh, uh, basically rise up in the hierarchy, and you, and you see coalitions in um, in a number of species. So uh, you see them in in hyenas, and there it's sort of an interesting situation because um, much of the work on coalitions has been done um, looking at coalitions in males, um, and so there are there's a lot of work that's been done on coalitions in primates, there's work that's been done on coalitions and power in dolphins, um, but that work tends to focus on coalitions between males, whereas in the hyenas, um, females are the power players. Um, they, uh, they have very, very strong, um, nasty jaws, and, um, and this allows them um, an ability to, to fight males in ways that, are, that you, don't, you tend not to see in other species. And females form coalitions. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is that um, it's not just that individuals in coalitions tend to have more offspring, they do. And again, that's always sort of the gold standard when you're thinking about this from the perspective of natural selection. Um, but in addition to that, uh, position, so, so essentially um, position and dominance hierarchies are, is passed down across generations. So high ranking individuals in, um, in hyenas tend to produce high ranking daughters who tend, again, to be very powerful in hierarchies. They tend to have more offspring. Um, and, and so you have this interesting interplay where you have both coalitions and you also have individuals who aren't necessarily as deeply embedded in coalitions, who might be high-ranked individuals. Um, they tend to produce high-ranked offspring. But, but middle-ranked individuals will often join together in an attempt to basically stage a coup and and rise themselves up in the hierarchy which then allows them more offspring and um, and so you get this interesting interplay between coalitions um, heritability and 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 many other things in in the hyenas but uh, do higher ranking individuals also incur costs are there yeah. costs associated with uh, attaining power yeah absolutely absolutely um, and those costs come in, in, in a couple of different forms. Um, one sort of um, 
more indirect cost, but potentially a, a, a very important one is that, um, so if, if you're a high ranking individual, you, you typically have to sort of police what's going on underneath you because all other individuals are doing what they can to rise up in the hierarchy and replace you if you're a high ranking individual. What that means is you will often have to um, get into aggressive interactions that you're, you're likely to win simply because you are already high in the hierarchy, which means that you've demonstrated the ability, for example, to be a good fighter. But the more interactions you have with individuals, um, the, the higher the probability, for example, that um, you pick up nasty things from interacting with these individuals. So that might be parasites or infectious diseases. You're basically interacting with a lot more individuals. And when that happens, then any parasites or infectious diseases that those individuals have tend to be um, more likely to be passed to you than if you were someone who didn't interact very much. Um, another, another cost is that um, it's a stressful thing to be um, at the top of the hierarchy in the sense, again, that, you're, that you really have to constantly be on guard against other individuals who are attempting to rise up in the hierarchy. This is stressful and this kind of stress can be measured um, by looking at stress hormones like cortisol and various other things. And, you know, somewhat surprisingly, in, in some species, you will see very high stress hormone levels, both in individuals at the top and also at the individuals on the bottom who are kind of constantly losing fights. Um, and and what, what people have found is that probably because being at the top of a hierarchy is relatively stressful. Um, surprisingly, when you look at what happens when someone loses grasp on that high ranking position. So if you look at individuals who, for example, are the top ranked individual in a group, and then they lose that, that top rank, one might expect that they will then be the second highest ranked individual in the group. But oftentimes what happens is they plummet to the bottom of the hierarchy. So there's a great example um, working, uh, looking at this in um, Reese's macaques on um, an island in Puerto Rico called Cayo Santiago, where they've been studying these macaques, everything about them for a very, very long time. And what researchers have found is that sometimes an individual who's, who's, who's top ranked for reasons that sometimes are difficult for researchers to discern. I mean, there's a lot of things going on and you don't see all the fights, but in this case, there was a top ranked male. He had sort of moved into a group, taken over the top rank, was mating with more females than anybody else. And then something happened and they don't know exactly what it was because they did not see the specific behavioral interaction, but they saw the results of it. The results of it were that this top ranked individual had really, really nasty bite marks in, in places you don't want nasty bite marks, indicating that they had lost probably a series of um, aggressive interactions, maybe with, um, maybe against coalitions um, that had formed in the group, they're not sure, but, 
But basically what happened was this individual plummeted to the bottom of the group. And it was really dramatic because they were sort of pushed to the periphery of the group. They were they had um, very little access to the best food um, before they they had preferential access to the best food. And the most dramatic thing from the perspective of the people who were who who were studying this was that all of a sudden everybody, I mean, including juveniles and, and um, who were who tend not to be all that involved in the power structure because they're small and they're relatively weak. Everybody, including juveniles, was just pounding on this individual who used to be the top ranked individual in the group. And so it's, it's a great example of if you lose the reins of power, sometimes uh, you just lose everything. You don't just lose a little bit, you lose it all. Mm -hmm. So when animals have to decide if they want to get into a contest with another individual or challenge another individual, what are some of the aspects that they assess in the particular situation? I mean, and the, when they're trying to decide, oh, should I go and challenge the other guy or not or something like yeah. that? Sure, sure. Well, um, I think the, the one that's most commonly used would be uh, some attempt to gauge the relative strength of um, potential opponents. And, um, and, and that can take a couple of different forms. Um, one might be um, trying to get that information without actually having to get into a fight to get that information. If you can get it for free, that's better than having to sample in order to get it. And so um, animals are always trying to um, assess relative size um, of potential opponents. The, the, maybe the most famous and, and, and most sophisticated way that we know animals do this is um, Tim Clutton Brock, who's um, a major researcher in animal behavior, has been studying red deer um, mm -hmm. on a, a little island in, in the United Kingdom. And, um, you know, red deer are big animals. Um, when they get into fights, it can be very, very dangerous, especially when males do. And so what the red deer do is they are trying to assess relative size. And the way that they do this is um, they may try and assess the size by actually looking at each other um, and, um, and, and, and doing it visually like, like we might do. But, but in fact, you know, that's not a particularly good way to do it as a red deer because you kind of lose a lot in the dimensionality. If you're looking straight at somebody, what you really want to know is how big their body is. And so they do these things called parallel walks where they will essentially line up together in parallel and start walking. And what Tim and others uh, have shown is that what they're doing by this is actually sort of measuring themselves up against other individuals. Um, this is also going on in other deer species in, in the book. I talk about an example of um, deer in a, in a park in Ireland where they've been roaming for um, where there's sort of uh, a, a large population of uh, fallow deer 
hundreds of them that roam through the park. And, and they also do this sort of assessment um, by, um, by trying to visually or tactily figure out their relative size. Another way, of course, would be to actually get into some um, altercation. And, and so, for example, um, in fish, what you will have is individuals will often, um, when they're trying to assess, they will often do things that are sort of a simpler version of what the deer are doing in the sense that they might circle around each other and, and try and gauge information that way. But um, at some point, they may, in fact, do something like grab jaws and start um, pushing against each other, right? And once you do that, um, that gives you a, a much better estimate of the strength. And really, that's what you care about. I mean, size is a very good indicator of strength, but what you really care about is strength. Um, and because strength is a good indicator of the probability of, of, of winning a fight. And so when you, for example, lock jaws with somebody and begin pushing back and forth, then you can um, get a... a, a pretty decent estimate of, of the strength. Now that's a little bit more dangerous because once you lock jaws um, and start shaking and doing things like that, you can get hurt. Um, so if you can do it without any risks like that, then, then natural selection um, should favor that. Um, but there, you know, sometimes even when, when you have these kinds of one-on-one -on -one assessments, it can get really, um, fairly sophisticated. So um, in hermit crabs, um, there are these battles going on all the time for um, access to really important resources. And, and for hermit crabs, it's actually the shell that they carry around on their back. They switch shells and what they want is a, a shell that's the perfect size for them so that they can go around and, and potentially um, compete against others, get um, resources and mates. And what they do, um, part of what they do, in addition to sort of grabbing um, claws and interacting, is sometimes they'll just kind of tap on the other individual shell, and they can get a rough estimate of the size of the other individual by sort of vibrational cues um, when, when, when you tap on the shell of somebody else. Um, so for example, um, if the shell is big, but the hermit crab inside it isn't as big, then they're not particularly dangerous. And of course, if the if it's not a good fit, then that means there's space between the shell and the crab inside, which gives off a different kind of echo sound. Um, so those are kind of classic one-on-one um, -on -one assessments, but it gets really interesting um, when, you, when you have um, what are sort of more cognitively sophisticated ways to um, assess potential opponents. Um, and, and one of those is what's called the audience or bystander effect. So it turns out that in everything um, from fish to penguins um, and more, what happens is individuals actually um, watch fights among others. And then what they do is they use that information as part of how they assess whether or not it's worth getting into a fight with one of the two individuals that you're watching. Um, I mean, I can give you 
an, an example of that, if, if yeah, so in fact, in my lab, um, one of my best PhD students a while back, his name was Ryan Early, did a whole dissertation um, on these bystander effects in swordtail fish. So swordtails are a small fish, they're, um, you know, uh, maybe four centimeters long, but, but they get into some pretty aggressive um, interactions. And what Ryan was able to do um, was he, he used a series of one-way mirrors so that he could sort of control who was seeing who. And, um, and it turns out that when you let a sword tail watch a fight between two others, it absolutely uses the information that um, it gleans from watching the fight. And it does it in very interesting ways. So um, one thing it does, and this is sort of what you would expect from a good spy, would be that if you see a fight between two others, you're much less likely to want to get into uh, an interaction with the winner of that fight than the loser of the fight, right? Because they're more if, if they win that fight, then they're more likely to be someone who's dangerous when you fight them. So you um, interact less with them, and when you and and when you do interact, you give up earlier because you've got information about them. I think where it gets even more interesting is that when you watch a fight and you have an opportunity to interact with the loser of that fight, there are these fine scale distinctions that you make that you might not associate with a sword tail fish. So it's not just that um, they're looking for losers to interact with because they know they're not good fighters. What they're doing is if an individual loses and they lose badly, then when you interact with them, you really pour it on. You, you, you know that you have a relatively good chance of winning and so you're very aggressive. But if you see somebody lose a fight, but they put up a really good effort and still lose, then you are much more cautious when you interact with that individual because, sorry about that, because um, even though they lost, they didn't go down easily. And it may very well be that um, they happened to lose that fight against somebody who was a really good fighter, but if, if they've indicated they're going to stick it out, that when you, then when you fight with them, you might very well lose. And so they're much um, more cautious when they, interact with um, losers than when they interact with winners. Um, and, um, you know, you get even more sort of sophisticated um, bystander effects when, yeah, so let me just give you one more example of the bystander effect, because I just, this is just one of my favorites. I mean, and, um, and I love ravens anyway, so this is um, this is a good yeah. chance to talk about them. So there's a research team in Austria, and they work on um, ravens up in the Austrian Alps. Um, and they've worked with these ravens for decades now, and so they know the animals. They're 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 um, they know who's who, and um, and so when ravens interact, um, especially when it comes to for power. Um, there is physical interaction and it can get dangerous. 
Okay. But a lot of what goes on um, when in, individual ra ravens are, or, or are struggling for powers, it's, it's a very noisy thing. They're, they're making all kinds of sounds. Um, and so what um, researchers working on these ravens found was this. Imagine you have two ravens and they're, and, and they're in some sort of aggressive interaction. Okay. And they're never alone. So it's, there's always lots of ravens around. So you have a pair of these ravens that are interacting and one of them is winning and one of them is on the losing end. So it turns out that individuals on the losing end, what they do is they're paying close attention to who is in the audience watching them. Okay, so this is sort of the flip side of that bystander effect that we talked about before. This is what's called the audience effect. What this means is that what animals are doing is not only watching others and using that information, but they pay attention to who's watching them when they're in power struggles. So in these ravens, you have a pair, one's winning and one's losing. So the loser, if it looks around and the audience, that is the other crows, let's say within 20 meters or something like that, if the audience happens to be made up of either your relatives mm -hmm. or your friends, that is into individuals who've had lots of pro-social interactions with, then what the loser does is it makes a lot of noise. And what that noise does is it, it, it draws in the audience who will often come in, come in and get involved in the interaction. Because they're your relatives and your friends, they side with you and that really helps you. If you're losing and you look around and the audience is filled with either the relatives or friends of the individual who's beating you up, then you basically be quiet because you're in bad enough shape as it is losing the fight. What you don't want is to draw attention to it because if you draw attention, now the audience that comes in is going to join against you and make it even worse for you. And so there are all these, you know, beautiful ways that animals um, can use assessment to figure out how to rise up in, in the power structure. Um, and you know, for me, um, this is really what makes studying power so interesting. I mean, if you went into the animal behavior literature, let's say 20 or 30 years ago, um, and you were looking at power, most of it revolved around sort of classic who beats up who things. But now so much of the work involves this sort of complex strategic behavior. Um, these bystander effects, these audience effects, animals also take into account if they happen to be on a winning streak or a losing streak. So if an animal has just come off winning a series of fights, then it's in fact more likely to get into, into interest, uh, aggressive interactions in the future. And if it's lost a bunch, then it uses that information as part of the assessment process. If I've just lost a bunch of fights, 
then that might mean I'm more likely to lose the next one. So I, I tone it down. These are all really um, complex strategic behaviors. And, um, and we really um, only in the last say 20 or 30 years have, have given um, th that the attention that it deserves. I mean, my interest is really in what what's going on among non-humans. But if your interest is, in fact, power in humans, then I think all of this strategic work, at least what um, it, de it demonstrates that um, there have been selective forces operating for a very, very long time to produce cognitively sophisticated strategies in animals besides humans. And of course, you know, there are going to be um, the kinds of things that you see in other primates are going to be more likely what you see in humans. But many of the, of the things that we've been talking about, sort of gauging the strength of opponents, using the audience, using spying techniques, these are things that we see in humans. And, and now we know they go on in non-humans. Yes, it's really fascinating. And another very interesting thing that you talk about in the book, and I would like, I would really love to hear more about it from you is, so do higher ranking individuals contribute also to pro-sociality in their own societies? Like, for example, by breaking up fights yes. between lower ranking individuals? Yeah. Yes, uh, no, so a a absolutely. Um, um, there's a wonderful study that um, Jessica Flack has done um, in, 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 in collaboration with um, Franz Deval, who um, is a very well-known animal behaviorist. And, um, and so what they were doing was they, they were um, looking at um, power in, um, in monkeys, and I'm actually uh, trying to remember exactly, I don't remember if it was vervets or, or macaques, it was one of those. Um, and so, so what they found was, you know, you get lots of interactions going on in, in, in troops of these monkeys. Um, uh, but right, so there, are, so there are interventions on the part of uh, some of the monkeys, meaning that what they do is that they will go and break up fights among others in their troop. And so this isn't a coalition in the sense that what one of the individuals is doing is joining forces with um, another who's in, in, in a fight. What they're doing is they're going in and they're stopping that fight. They're basically, they're, they're breaking it up. And so not unexpectedly, um, what you find is the individuals who do this tend to be top ranked individuals. And, um, and so what Jessica Fleck and her team did was they said, okay, so um, what's going on um, with these top ranked individuals that are intervening? What's the sort of societal level implications of this intervention behavior? Is it in fact somehow um, there in a way that unifies the society, even though when you're kind of looking at any particular instance, it's aggressive because to break up the fights, you, you have to go in there and make, make it clear that you're capable of doing that. And they stop, the, the fight stops. 
But so what, what they did was they, um, they, they set up an experiment um, where they removed uh, the top ranked individuals who were in fact doing the intervention. And so what they did was they took them out of the, of the troop, but they put them in a position where the others in the troop could see them, but the, inter, the, the top ranked individual was separated so they couldn't do anything um, socially with the individuals in that group physically. And what they found was, first of all, nobody stepped in and took the role of the individual who breaks up fights. So that in and of itself tells you something. But most fascinating was that basically the structure of the society broke down. So before that there was, all these individuals were part of one group. There was a social structure to the group. There were high ranked individuals and there were low ranked individuals, but, but, but it was a single group in the sense that, that they interacted with each other, all of them. Mm-hmm. When you take out these interveners, what happens is you get this kind of balkanization, like sort of what happened in the Balkans in the, in, um, when, when they broke up and formed lots and lots of smaller countries. You take out the intervener and all of a sudden, the entire society breaks up into smaller clusters, smaller groups that don't interact across groups, but do interact within groups. So instead of having one society, you've broken it down now to groups that will not interact with each other, but will only interact with um, those in their group. And that's all a function of having, when you take out the policers, when you take out the individuals who are going around breaking up fights, this is what happens. So the question then, um, at some level, but would be why. So what, what, why? So we understand. Okay, if you if you take out the interveners, this is what happens. But so why why would you, as a top ranked individual, do this? You're you're already top ranked. Why do you go around breaking up fights between others? And I think there's another study system that actually um, allows us to sort of um, get at that uh, question a little bit better. And th- and this takes us back to the fallow deer that I talked about earlier. So there's this park in the middle of Dublin. It's a giant park and it used to be um, owned by, you know, it used to be owned by some rich family and and they turned it into an area where fallow deer could roam freely and Dubliners love these deer. And so even today, they're just allowed to roam freely um, in in the park. Um, And so what animal behaviorists have done is they've gone in and they've used this as this wonderful study system. And um, so these are fallow deer and and a lot of the um, power struggles are among males. They're trying to get access to mates with females. And again, these are really, I mean, these are big animals and and when they interact, it can be very dangerous when they, when they sort of, when they're, when their antlers uh, inter- grasp one another and, and, and they are basically shaking, it can be a very, very dangerous thing um, for, for males. Um, and what you find in, in, in the fallow deer is again, um, this intervention behavior. And um, it turns out that what researchers think is going on here is the following. 
So they ended up testing a little model that I had done years earlier, um, where the idea was that um, you might get interventions, particularly among uh, by high-ranking individuals, if you have a society where these winner effects are in place. So if you have a society where if individuals win, they're more likely to get into fights and win again, mm -hmm. then if you are the higher ranking, if you're the highest ranking individual in that society, you do not want other individuals, particularly those who might be just below you in the hierarchy to get on winning streaks, because when they get on winning streaks, that makes them more likely to challenge you and potentially defeat you. And so in the fallow deer, you have these winner effects and you have a situation, the model predicts that it will be the high ranking individuals who will go around breaking up the fights. And, and, and that's what happens. But, but again, it's like with the, with the monkeys, the, the, the interventions are not targeting one or the other of the individuals who are in a fight. All the interventions do is stop the fight. So you might imagine that the intervener might, for example, preferentially stop the fight in a way that helps somebody who's lower in the hierarchy because they're less dangerous. But in fact, that's not what happens. They just break up the fight because they don't want individuals below them to get on winning streaks. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, these, these behaviors that sometimes are between two individuals or between even three individuals, they have implications for the entire societal structure, not just the individuals who are actually involved in the interactions, which again, makes this so much more complex and interesting than we used to think was going on um, in animals. I mean, you know, if you look even further back, 40 and 50 years ago, um, you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that um, animal behavior is sort of, animal behavior sort of thought of animals as um, little robots um, and that are programmed and they're programmed by their genes. And of course, there is a sense in which that is true. It just turns out the programming is, the algorithm is far more complex than we thought it was. Um, and, and for me, that's what makes it all fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, so another question, do power struggles occur only uh, among individuals of the same sex? That is, are they always intersexual or can they occur sometimes in intersexually or between individuals of opposite sexes? sexes? Yeah, so um, most, in, in, I would say in most animal societies, um, you will see power struggles uh, between, mostly between individuals of the same sex, but mm -hmm. not always. Um, and so, for example, um, there's um, there's been um, some work done uh, up in Canada on, um, I believe it was elks uh, up in northern Canada. And again, you have the situation where um, these are dangerous 
animals they can really really hurt one another and um and 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 what you find is that typically speaking males um are the ones that are struggling for power more often amongst themselves but of course females uh, want to attain resources as well. And for, for these animals, the resources is sort of food buried under the snow, for example. And usually females lose because they don't have antlers, but there's a particular time of the year where the males lose their antlers and all of a sudden females can um, be equal power players. And when that happens, they tend to, to, to struggle with males. And, and in fact, they may lose more often than they win, but not nearly as much as they do when the males have antlers and they don't. So it was caribou, not elk. I apologize um, for what I said. Um, I knew it was a big creature um, in, in northern Canada. Um, but, you know, even if most power struggles are among individuals of the same sex. That doesn't mean that power in that society is all determined by interactions among individuals in the same sex. So let me explain what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, there's a classic example of males fighting for one another for um, dominance in um, where um, you have um, seals in, um, in uh, northern uh, northern seals in in California um, that uh, where you have males that can weigh a um, a thousand pounds, and um, and what you find is that uh, males will struggle intensely for power and these these struggles can be just really really violent they're very very loud they're very very violent um, but in fact uh, what happens is that if you win these fights then when females come on shore um, a male who is at the top of the hierarchy can have what euphemistically are, are referred to as harems. We don't really like that word that much anymore, but basically all we mean is that a male will be um, defending uh, many, many females, and in fact can father offspring with dozens of different females um, in a given mating season. And so basically there were a few of these males who were doing that, and every other male is having very, very little reproductive success. But even though all of the interactions are between males, it's not as if what females do um, doesn't matter. It matters very much, right? What happens is that you have 90% of the males who don't have these harems, but they're looking to reproduce any way they can. And so they'll often try and sneak in to a harem and mate with a male. Now, if you're trying to defend dozens and dozens of females, then, you know, um, it might very well be that one of these other males can sneak in and, um, and get access to a female. What the females do though is if 
in fact, a subordinate male comes in to the harem of one of these northern elephant seals, what she will do is if that male tries to mate with her, she will make a giant racket. She will make all sorts of noises. And what those noises do is they draw the attention of the dominant male. And as soon as he comes over, the subordinate male leaves. And so even though all of the behavioral interactions early on are about determining who's gonna be the dominant male, females are not passive players. They prefer to mate with the dominant males because that means their offspring are more likely, their male offspring are more likely to be those, those kind of dominant males in the future. And so when a subordinate comes in, they don't want any part of that, but they're not big enough to stop the subordinate. So what do they do? They make an announcement to the dominant that there's a subordinate male here trying to mate with me. And, and once the dominant knows that, they, 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 they leave. Um, there's, there are other ways in which um, females play really important roles in um, animal societies in which most of the interactions, aggressive interactions and struggle for power is among males. So um, if you look at um, dwarf mongooses, they are um, this wonderful study system um, in, out in Africa where people have been studying these, these mongooses forever. And, um, and again, you know, most of the interactions are um, between males. Um, and these are in fact, um, I'm sorry, they're banded mongooses, not dwarf mongooses. So you look at these mongooses and what happens is you have groups of these individuals and the groups tend to be made up of um, highly related individuals. And um, when the high, so what females wanted, want is not to mate with individuals who are their genetic relatives. So if they can leave their group and mate with males in a, another group, then they might be able to find mates who are not their genetic relatives. But of course, males from their group don't like females leaving and trying to mate with other um, mongooses. And um, these, uh, um, and, and so, um, what they'll do is they will follow those females into another group. Mm -hmm. And what the people who study this think is going on is this. If you watch what's happening, right, um, you see that when the females leave their group, they have males from their group who follow them. And females know that this is going to happen because that's what always happens. When they get into the other group, the males in that other group don't like having males from the females group follow her in. And you basically get a gigantic knockdown, drag out fight between groups of males. And while that knockdown, drag out fight is going on, 
what is happening is females are mating with the males in the group they've moved into here that aren't involved in the fight. So what they're doing is essentially using the fact that the males are getting into these really, really intense fights to um, distract those males so they can in fact mate with other males in that group and mate with individuals who are not their genetic relatives. So again, you have a situation where males are the ones who are being aggressive, but females are using that to their own advantage. Okay, so one final question then. Um, so in, uh, when it comes to power, can we also study power at a group level? Is there something like group power in evolutionary biology? Um, yes. So there is group power, um, but I think um, we, we, we often need to be a little bit careful about the okay. way that we discuss that. Okay. So yes, there is group power, um, but um, basically when you have struggles between groups, the way we tend to think about it is that those struggles are, are a manifestation of what's good for each of the individuals in the groups that involve are involved. So, so that, so even though the unit at which power struggles occur might be the group, it's the individuals in the group who are in fact getting preferential benefits. Um, who, uh, the, the group that wins gets preferential benefits, which means the individuals in that group get preferential benefits. And so the benefits are at the individual level. Okay, um, that said, um, what you get, for example, in um, Florida scrub jays, um, a, a bird system where um, people have been um, studying uh, their behavioral dynamics forever, um, is you have uh, family territories. And these family territories are controlled by, by, by a single family, but um, you, they're each family is attempting to sort of encroach into the area of the adjoining families because the more land you get, the more likely you are to get food and to get good habitats. And so there are these um, struggles that occur between groups. Larger families are more likely to win, but um, there are other factors in play. And so you will often see, for example, um, attempts by younger birds to sort of um, expand the territory of their families so that they can have a new place that's their own, but that is in fact part now of the family territory. And, you know, the dynamics between individuals in, in, in these family groups can be intense. I mean, you, you can have um, sort of knock down, drag out fights, those aren't all that common. More, more commonly, what you'll see is sort of patrolling behavior where everybody's sort of keeping track of where the borders are and attempting um, to keep those borders sound. And when, 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 when there's an attempt to sort of change the borders, that's when, get, when things get interesting. You know, another example of the, um, of the interaction between groups are, are the mongooses we talked about, because basically, um, you know, you have really um, knockdown, drag out fights between groups. Those 
tend to be facilitated by females moving around and males responding to that. But you certainly get that kind of group level struggle um, in, in mongooses as well as Florida scrub jays and then also a, a few more species. Mm -hmm. Great. So uh, the book is again, Power in the Wild, the subtle and not so subtle ways animals strive for control over others. I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Dugatkin, just before we go, would you like to tell people, uh, apart from the book, where they can find you and your work on the internet? Oh, sure. So, um, you can find me. Uh, you, uh, you you can you can uh, find me uh, through my department, which is uh, the University of Louisville um, Department of Biology, or you can just Google my name up, and you can um, get to my website, which is I already am forgetting what my own website is. Oh yes, here we go. So it's um, my last name Dugatkin at strikingly.com. Um, and there you'll find videos of, of, of talks I've given all over, um, as well as links to papers and um, and books. So yeah, dugatkin.strikingly.com. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm happy if people uh, are interested in anything particular we talked about today, uh, drop me an email and uh, and we can chat. Okay, great. I'm also leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. You will find links to it in the description box of this interview. And also, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perorga Larson, Jerry Mueller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windager, Rui Nassio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavana, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, João Linhares, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hamel, Sardas France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Dana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stasebski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Martin Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mal Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Gloacki, Georgius Theophanus, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Moray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herringbone, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracie, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, 
Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson and Chris Story. A special thanks to my producers Isa Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Van Egdam, Bernard Igni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Alnick Ortiz, and to my executive producers Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.